104.5 The Zone's non-stop sports talk continues with a look at Nashville's teams and at news around the nation from the lead writer of 104.5thezone.com. This is The Big Six. The Big Six with Jason Martin. Presented by Renters Warehouse. And here we go. Straight up 6 o'clock by my watch means it's time for the one and only Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. Glad to have you with us. I'm Jason Martin. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. I am blessed beyond measure. So very blessed beyond measure. I hope you recognize that you are as well. Our telephone number is 615-737-1045-737-1045. So, man. We're going to have some fun tonight. Christopher Martell will join me in the next segment to talk about the NHL trade deadline and the moves that the Predators made today. Big moves. That'll be in the next segment. Also, we're going to debut something new tonight that we're going to start doing on a regular basis on this program. That's coming up. I have thoughts on Robert Kraft, but more I have thoughts on what that story is really about, and it really isn't about Robert Kraft. But let's talk about the Vols off the top. And... Well, you know, I was just going to talk about the game, but then this official story comes out, and now that's sort of making rounds. Tennessee, this is from CBS, Tennessee contacted the SEC office over the weekend regarding one of the referees who officiated Saturday's 82-80 to loss at LSU. The referee had an old Facebook post that is now going viral for all the wrong reasons. The post, which was from 2014, shows official Anthony Jordan in LSU gear with a caption that in part reads, Go Tigers! And he's holding up an LSU shirt. Head official was an LSU fan, the one from Saturday. The officiating was called into question over and over again during that 82-80 to loss for the Vols in overtime. Clay Travis, my old boss and my good friend, and of course you know him here from 104.5 The Zone. He's on the Midday 180 every Friday. Sometimes he joins me as well. Tweeted out earlier today, there were many reasons Tennessee lost to LSU on Saturday, but having an LSU fan as head ref and having him make many borderline calls in an overtime win in favor of LSU is a really bad look for this ref and the SEC. The SEC is saying, you know, they're going to act accordingly and they're not really happy with what's going on here either. It is a really bad look because it was bad officiating. 82 to 80 on Saturday, pitiful officiating, utterly atrocious. And at some point, we are going to have to find a way to do this whole, let's go to the monitors for a review idea better than we're doing it. Because whoever was going to win that game, it was not going to feel like a particularly inviting victory or a satisfying victory. Because to say that there was no flow once all of that started going down was absolutely unreal. Folks, I had to drive to the studio to do some recording work in advance of hosting Sunday morning on Fox Sports Radio, and I, I left with around five minutes left in regulation. I left my place. I listened to our Vol Network coverage here on The Zone on the way in, assuming I was probably going to hear the end of the game on the radio because it's about a 20, 25-minute drive to get me here, barring traffic. Plus, we saw the weather on Saturday, so I wasn't driving nearly as fast, and there was a lot of traffic. I figured, you know, I'll go back and watch the end of the game later, but I'll hear the end on the way in. But when I got here, there were still two minutes left in traffic, in the rain, because of how much of a delay this game ran into with these endless review situations. It's got to be better than this. However, 
And look, I tweeted something out and immediately fans come after me because what is Twitter if not a repository for you're an idiot and shut up takes from people responding to other people's opinions? I'm going to suggest something to you. This is a pro tip. If you disagree with me, that's perfectly fine. It's also perfectly fine to hit me up and tell me so. I've always said agreement is not a prerequisite for communication or interaction with this show or anything I do. I love the debate. I love the discussions. Often you guys can change my mind. The last thing I am is flawless in any respect. In fact, I'm as far from it as you can get. But I will say this. If you come at me disrespectfully, you're going to get muted immediately. I'm not going to see anything else you ever say to me, and you're never going to know it. So just recognize if you're acting like a jack wagon to me on Twitter, all your comments are then going to fall into the sea without a sound. So you're wasting your time. Just be pleasant. Be classy. And that's not just to me. It's to everybody. We have lost civility, and social media is a big cause of it. What I suggested Saturday was the foul committed by Grant Williams. I said it was an all-time bad play by a great player. And people said, all-time, hyperbole much? Look, I'm not saying it was Chris Webber calling timeout in the 1993 title game against North Carolina. What I meant was, for Grant Williams, this was about as bad a play and as bad a judgment as that guy is capable of making, and it cost his team the game. So then come the tweets. No, it was Lamonte Turner's three-pointer. And then, no, it was Rick Barnes not calling timeout. And, no, it was the officiating. And, no, it was the lack of defense, et cetera. Folks, here's the deal. The answer to every one of those things is yes. We happen to live in a world where, and I know that there are some people out there that don't seem to recognize this, but we live in a world where multiple things can be true simultaneously that don't necessarily contradict one another. You can point to any number of things that help lose that game for Tennessee, but what you can't do is tell me Grant Williams' foul didn't directly lead to that loss because it was that call with 0.6 seconds on the clock that put LSU on the free throw line and effectively wrapped this up because it wasn't Nick Anderson in a magic uniform at the charity strike. Guy made the free throw ball game. And if you heard Dick Vitale during the game, he pointed out repeatedly how much just the athletic advantage was that LSU had over Tennessee. Jay Billis said the same thing a week ago about Kentucky. Whatever you think of Dickie V is irrelevant here. He's right. The Vols are a top 10 team because of their cohesion, because of their maturity, and because of their work ethic. There's a reason it's not it. Well, you know what? There's a reason it is a collection of upperclassmen. They're not naturally gifted enough to be one and done guys. I know that sounds bad. It's just true. Zion Williamson is not of all. RJ Barrett, also not of all. I love me some Admiral Schofield, and I love Grant Williams, and they're tremendous college basketball players, but none of those guys are predicted in the top 20 in the NBA draft. Neither of them. What it means is the fundamentals have got to be sound in order for Tennessee to beat good basketball teams consistently. LSU qualifies. They entered that game in their home gym, a raucous building now. They're coming off beating Kentucky. Will Wade's got them believing, and now Will Wade has other things on his plate. But what we did see on Saturday is Admiral played his rear end off. Jordan Bone wasn't feeling well, didn't offer much, didn't play as much. Grant Williams was doing his thing, which is positive and negative because for some reason he flops around and he hits the deck way too often. And even on the foul call that led to LSU's win, Grant Williams was whistled after taking another hard fall he really didn't need to take. 
But what we saw was terrible defense. This is what you cannot have when you don't have a collection of McDonald's All-Americans on your roster. Team defense is how you win when you're built the way Tennessee is. Tenacious, team-oriented defense. The Golden State Warriors, a vastly underrated defensive team in the NBA, despite their offensive skill. What does defense do in addition to keeping the other squad from scoring? That's the obvious thing. What else does it do? It leads to transition basketball. It leads to a fast break off a rebounded bad shot or off a steal and a much easier time scoring a bucket on the other end. Schofield's mid-range game was exquisite on Saturday against LSU. The Vols generally do well in the mid-range game, but it sure is easier to score when you don't have to work out of the half court because you're taking the ball out for every possession from underneath the opponent's basket after a made shot. And then on the road, defense is even more critical because there is nothing, folks, that shuts a loud crowd down and takes them completely out of their enthusiasm zone, quite like watching their home team just stifled over and over, clanging and bricking shots all over the place and ending up taking desperation stuff at the end of shot clocks because of defense. Kentucky was flat better than UT last Saturday, and they just simply couldn't miss early, and then they weren't able to miss late either, but it was soft perimeter defense after poor shot selection that gave them far too many open shots. Also, second chance points off the glass. Here's the truth, and I think you all recognize this by now. Tennessee's in a bit of a funk right now, and you can really date it back to the Vanderbilt game. Maybe you can date it back to another time, but the Vanderbilt game where the doors probably should have beaten them here in the Music City, the team that night that was wearing orange did not look cohesive the way they had in weeks prior. And since that point, I have found myself summarily unimpressed with that squad as a whole. Not that they don't have talent. I just haven't seen what I need to see from a consistency standpoint to feel good about their chances as we move towards the games that really do matter. Some of these that we've already played, that Tennessee's already played, they matter. But the ones that can knock you out are still to come. But this team has got to play together. They've got to be fundamentally sound or they're flat out going to get beat because, and I know it sounds like a slight, but there is a raw talent discrepancy between Tennessee and some of these other top 10 teams, or all of them, almost all of them. But again, these are regular season games. There are still tournament games to come, SEC tournament and certainly the NCAA tournament as well. But with that said, this Vols team needs to show up and try to punk Ole Miss on Wednesday night. I mean, they need to show up and play great basketball on Wednesday night. And then comes a statement, potential statement at least, against Kentucky in the rematch at TBA on Saturday. If they show up and they get blown out on Saturday, this sure feels a lot to me like we're building to something incredibly underwhelming in March for Rick Barnes. And all that's going to do is further the Rick Barnes can't win in March narrative. Things are not going in the right direction right now. It just feels stagnant. Like the milk doesn't need to be thrown out because it's not fully spoiled, but it's past the expiration date. You know that bag of Doritos that you get out of like the company vending machine? And you look at that thing, and it says your freshness date passed like 30 days ago. And it's a little bit stale. It's not going to hurt you, but you still go ahead and eat it. 
and then you recognize, or maybe you get halfway through the bag, and then you realize, man, you know, these don't taste quite as good as they usually do. Let me look at the bag, and then you say, oh, the freshness date was January the 24th. Okay, they're not awful, but they're not what they should be. We need to throw out the old Doritos and get the new ones in there as we're looking at this Tennessee basketball team. They need a good week. They have not looked very good over the past few weeks. They don't have the raw talent to get away with something maybe a Duke team could get away with or a Kentucky team could get away with or a Michigan State team even could get away with. They have got to play cohesive ball, and they've got to be smart. And what Grant Williams did at the end of that game, I don't like making that call 80 feet away from the goal, meaning I don't like the officials making that call. And yes, this is a terrible look with an LSU fan, it appears, being one of the officials in that game that was so tight and there were so many judgment calls that seemed to go in the favor of LSU. All of that stuff is true. What's also true is Grant Williams is supposed to be a really smart player. And he is, but he made a really dumb play, and it directly led to the end of that basketball game and a bad loss for Tennessee. Up next, Chris Martell. We'll talk some Nashville Predators. A couple of big moves. David Poyle swinging for the fences. Next, Big Six presented by Renner's Warehouse here on 104.5 The Zone. So, Sports Fest is back at Nissan Stadium. Saturday, March 30th. Find out more at 1045thezone.com. Kings of Leon for you. Find me the name of this tune. This is the Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. We are brought to you by Renters Warehouse, dedicated to helping homeowners benefit from the rental boom by renting their homes the easy way. Renters Warehouse, you can't buy happiness, but you can rent it. My name is Jason Martin. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. A guy that should be on this show more often than he is, and I may have to ask him some pro wrestling questions because I know he's a fan. Maybe he listens to Squared Circle Radio. I don't know. He's the host of the Neutral Zone here on 104.5 The Zone, Fox Sports Tennessee's Christopher Martell joins the program. Chris, what's up, buddy? Jason, buddy. How are you this evening? I am fired up, man. I, it may be because I've had too much coffee today, quite frankly. <laughs> I've had like six or seven cups, and I just kind of added it up and realized, man, I've had a whole lot of coffee. I'm kind of bouncing off the walls, and so are you because... This has become a very busy day. Are you surprised at what the Predators did today, or was this kind of what you were anticipating? You know, I could sit, I could sit here and say, uh, you know, no, I'm not surprised. But a, a part of me is, you know, a part of me is a bit surprised at, at what they were able to receive uh, and what they were able to trade away. Uh, bringing back pieces in Grandland and uh, Wayne Simmons, you know, Wayne Simmons has been on, the, been on the trade block and has been associated with the Predators for a few months now. But Granlin's name just came up over the last 24 hours. And for them to be able to trade these guys away, not give up their first-round draft pick, not give up Ellie Tolvanen, not give up the rights to Dante Fabro, and, and bring these guys back in, it's a phenomenal job from David Foyle. So tell me what Nashville gets in Granlin first. Obviously somebody that, that really helps them on the power play. Absolutely. This guy has 18 points on the power play already this season, which slots him at number one overall for the Predators on their entire lineup. Uh, the next closest is Ryan Johansson at 13. But this is, uh, Granlund is a player who is, uh, can position himself as a center. He can position himself as a wing. And he's a guy that can 
he can score. I mean, he is a 60-point guy uh, perennially. So he's, he's one of those guys that can continue to chip in wherever he's at, whatever line he's on. And I think, I have a feeling they're probably going to slot him in the second line with, with Kyle Terrace and Craig Smith. And in doing so, I really feel like that's going to give uh, both Kyle Terrace and Craig Smith a little bit more free space to be able to do what they want to do creatively, offensively, that they haven't been able to achieve so far this season. Was this a case in moving Kevin Fiala, despite that guy having a lot of promise, just not being consistent enough? I think that's what David Poyle said. In terms of being able to play the waiting game, it seems like Poyle is, I'm going to try and win now. And with Fenton loving Fiala the way he did, let's go get a now player in Grandland rather than holding off and hoping that Kevin Fiala turns into the player that maybe he was supposed to when he was drafted. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think they didn't want to they didn't want to have um they didn't want to really keep looking at the the prospect of Kevin Fiala to be a good player eventually for the Predators. I mean, this is a team that has a window of opportunity that is right now. And they need a player that's going to help them right now. And unfortunately Kevin Fiala just was not producing for the Predators. He had flashes of brilliance. He looked like he could be a all-world player eventually, but just at the current time, it wasn't going to happen. So uh, with David Floyd, as he does, he was going to make sure he was going to get what he could, and he traded him for a 60-point player per year that is going to be able to produce now rather than down the road. Now, we know we know about the physicality of Wayne Simmons. He comes from... Philadelphia, the Preds bring him in as well. He was the second move that was made this afternoon. Where does this make sense most in your head? You said that they've been kind of tied to him for for a little while now. This one wasn't nearly as big a surprise. Uh, but you let Ryan Hartman go and you bring this guy in. What does he do for the Preds? Well, Wayne Simmons is a guy that has previously played under Peter Laviolette's system when Laviolette was the coach for the Flyers. So he already knows how Laviolette's system works and how he's able to execute in that system. But Wayne Simmons is going to come in and probably, he's probably going to be more of a third, fourth line role kind of guy. But imagine, imagine Austin Watson that could score more and is probably a little bit more physical. Mm. And that's what you get in Wayne Simmons. Wayne Simmons has been doing this for quite a few years. He's 30 years old. He consistently can put up 20 goals a season. And so you know he has an offensive punch. But at the same time, if push comes to shove, he's going to be out there defending his teammates. And not just that, but he's a good presence on the power play. Another thing that Nashville continues to need as the season progresses. They need to have help on the power play. So <laughs> the Nashville went out and got themselves two players, one who is extremely physical in Wayne Simmons and one who is a naturally gifted talent in Mikhail Granlund uh, to not just contribute offensively in the lineup, but on the power play as well. Christopher Martell, our guest here on the Big Six tonight at kmartell underscore sports to follow him. So clearly, Boyle thinks this team can make a run. They've been so spotty at times this season. So you do the Boyle thing. Now you get Granlund and Simmons. I don't know how to ask this, but what's the hope level if you're a Nashville Predators fan today on a scale of one to ten from your perspective? Well, I think you know. I think you get to really base it off of what you've seen over the previous couple of weeks, uh, and if the Predators were to have not done anything today, uh, not make any moves compared to making moves. Uh, so uh, the Predators came into today's trade deadline kind of spreading water. Uh, they really didn't have an answer for what to do on the power play. Uh, they had lost a couple key games. They probably should have won, 
and uh, they probably have looked a bit lackluster in the process over the last two weeks. You bring in two dynamic players that they did today, and in my opinion, I think the outlook has to be at least a good seven or eight uh, on a scale of one to ten, because these are two players that you know can impact right now. I mean, Granlin already has 40-plus points on the season, and Wayne Simmons, I mean, uh, I believe he's already uh, over the 20-point mark already. He is already played under Peter Laviolette's system. These guys know how to produce, and they come into a Predators lineup that has struggled with being able to not just produce offensively, but to produce in general over the last two weeks. And coming into crunch time with the final 18 games of the season, this kind of move right here, these kind of moves, are the ones that David Poyle needed to make to really kind of give the fan base something to uh, say, okay, we're fine, no big deal, it's just a regular season, let's get into the playoffs. Just looking at some of the other moves, the the big one outside of Nashville, I think, is Vegas grabbing Mark Stone from Ottawa. They also get better now, but they give up some use to do it. When you look at that, and the Predators fans are like, ooh, Vegas got better as well. How do you look at that deal as it relates to what the Preds were able to accomplish? You know, Vegas and Nashville apparently were going down to the wire to try to get Mark Stone. Vegas, of course, had the uh, better prospect to give up um, and was able to um, have, I guess, I don't necessarily know that Nashville didn't have uh, the capability to sign him long-term for the term that Mark Stone wanted. But in the same regard, Mark Stone is a 70 plus point player, and this is a guy who is just going to, uh, he, he is very deadly coming from the Eastern Conference over to the Western Conference and uh, playing for a, a team in Vegas that you know is going to be deep in the playoffs. Uh, so, comparing, you know, to what Nashville did, uh, Vegas, in my opinion, uh, easily secured themselves a spot in at least the second or third round. Mm. And uh, Nashville is going to have to uh, make their way through Vegas if they want to get to the Stanley Cup final. When do we expect to see Granlund and Simmons on the ice? Well, Granlund right now, his wife is is in labor, so it's uh, kind of a wait-and-see thing for Mikhail Granlund. Uh, Wayne Simmons should be with the team tomorrow in St. Louis. Wayne Simmons, where do you do you think he fits in with Benino? Is that, I think I saw you tweet that out. Is that, is that kind of where he's going to be? He might not be quite as high up on the pecking order as he was at times with the Flyers, but he could fit in maybe on, what, the third line? That's where I would put him if uh, Granlund is in the lineup. I would uh, push him down to the third line, maybe put him with Benito, maybe a yarn crook. Uh, but with Granlund not being um, in the lineup for maybe the next couple of games, depending on what happens uh, uh, and you know how the uh, labor process goes with his wife and how quickly that is, uh, you could see him on the second line. Uh, the Predators may make a call-up and put someone else on the third line instead. So Simmons could get as high as being with Turris and Smith come tomorrow night. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me one bit, but normally, if Granlin's in the lineup, I would say put him on the third line with Benino. Chris, you're the best man. Pump your book. We haven't been able yeah, to yeah. do that on the show. <laughs> Tell, talk about yeah. your book. Uh, the book is um, Tales from the National Predators Locker Room. It, it's uh, some of the greatest stories in Predators history, um, all the way from, of, of course, there's, there's stories in there about game ops, stories in there about Nash. There's a great chapter about how... Um, how hockey players come up with nicknames and they keep them going throughout the season. Stories like that, it's a lot of things that haven't been told so far, but you can pick that up. Amazon, Books A Million, Barnes & Noble, anywhere you can find books here in Middle Tennessee, you can pick it up. 
Big time, Chris. We will talk to you again soon, my friend. Raw's going to be fun tonight. Roman Reigns is going to have positive information. Plus, I think Becky Lynch is going to be a part of one of the more historic in terms of just memorable segments that we've seen on WWE television this decade. It's really going to be tough because I've got to, I've got to watch Twitter all night, right? And I have a, I have a DVR'd, so I know <laughs> I'm going to get spoiled at some point in time with what happens on Raw. But uh, they have the chance to really make this a really really solid, memorable night of Monday Night Raw, and I I really hope they execute it perfectly. Yeah, they desperately need it. All right, Chris, we'll talk to you soon, buddy. Thanks, Jason. That's Christopher Martell at K Martell underscore Sports. Coming up next, everybody's talking about Robert Kraft. But there's a reason why this story needs to be mentioned, and it has really very little to do with Robert Kraft. We'll talk about that next. This is a big six on 104.5. Every player has a draft day story. This is Keith Bullock. Five linebackers had gone ahead of me in the first round already. I was just upset as my stomach was. I went to the bathroom, and I get a call, and it's Jeff Fisher. And he asks, am I ready to be a Tennessee Titan? Without flushing or wiping, I say, Coach, yes, I am. The 2019 NFL Draft, coming April 25th on The Sports Station, 104.5 The Zone. Radiohead, the trickster, B-side if you haven't heard it. This is the Big Six on 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin. You can follow me, tweet me, comment to me, whatever, at jmartzone, 615-737-1045-737-1045. Thanks to Christopher Martell for joining us to catch us up to date on what's going on with the Predators. Talk balls in the first segment as well. That OSU referee thing is kind of incredible. But the story that hit on Friday about Robert Kraft and then advanced a little bit today from ESPN.com authorities say New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft visited a Florida massage parlor for sex acts on the morning of the AFC championship game which he attended in Kansas City later that day according to documents released by the Palm Beach State Attorney's Office on Monday it was the second visit by Kraft to the parlor in less than 24 hours the documents say Kraft arrived at the Orchids of Asia day spa in a chauffeured 2015 Blue Bentley at 11 a.m. on January 20th he was videotaped receiving oral and manual sex from a woman at the spa in Jupiter. Officials say he gave her a $100 bill and another bill before leaving at 11.15 a.m. This is from Florida. Then he got to Kansas City for a 6.40 Eastern time kick between the Chiefs and the Patriots. So, kind of amazing that a spokesperson for Robert Kraft stated on Friday, we categorically deny that Mr. Kraft engaged in any illegal activity when the very first thing that the police had said originally was that they had video evidence. That's a ballsy play to basically say that the video evidence doesn't exist. The These are not the droids you're looking for defense did not seem to work. There are people making an argument today, and I expected this immediately on Friday. They're saying, you know, this is overblown. Prostitution shouldn't be illegal. A lot of people saying that, as a matter of fact. I honestly don't want to get into that. Because, look, it is an interesting debate to have as to whether or not 
we should be adjudicating or criminalizing vices. And that can, you know, you can go into drugs and you can go into gambling and you can go into prostitution and all of these things. That we are trying to somehow criminalize or quantify morality. And that can be difficult. But the story as it relates to Robert Kraft, I honestly, like, it's bad. It's really bad what Robert Kraft did. But the reason why I want to talk about it is not to talk about Robert Kraft. It's because of Robert Kraft that we know about this story. And it's the fact that there's a human trafficking ring as part of this that makes it relevant. And this is why I want to mention it right now. This is from Jenny Vrentis' article at SI that came out on Saturday. Last July, a detective at the Martin County Sheriff's Office responded to a complaint from the health department about conditions at a local day spa that suggested intentional human trafficking. There was evidence that employees were living there 24 hours a day, cooking on the back steps and sleeping on the massage tables. The investigation indicated that employees of these spas came to the United States from China seeking jobs as maids or restaurant workers, in some cases bringing their children along. Instead, they ended up trapped as sex workers serving as many as 1,500 male clients a year with no days off, no means of transportation, and hygiene that was described as minimal at best. At the Orchids of Asia Day Spa, which is where Robert Kraft was, at this particular spa, again from the article, police discovered beds, dressers containing medicines and other personal items, and refrigerators with food and condiments, all consistent with people living there, Trash pools revealed spreadsheets with client information and napkins containing, and I'll leave a blank there and you can fill it in. The spa advertised a variety of services, but police observed only male clients visiting. I honestly could not care less whether or not you believe prostitution should be legal or illegal. The fact of the matter is the law is the law at this point, and it is illegal. So what was going on there was not above board. Robert Kraft a billionaire who can only be fined a maximum of $500,000 by the NFL, which turns out to, I looked this up, it's about $2.50 for a median American income. That's what it would cost. That's what it would feel like it was costing, considering what he's worth. Robert Kraft made a bad decision. If you want to go do this, go do it in Nevada where it is legal in some places. Go to the Bunny Ranch or whatever. But you found a way to go to Jupiter, Florida to do this. And whether, again, whether or not you believe prostitution should be legal or illegal is completely irrelevant. It is illegal right now where he went and did it. And it is people like him. It is men like him that are paying money that are leading to women basically being slaves for sex in the state of Florida. And these were not expensive appointments. From what I read, it was 59 to $79 per session was the average. And this stuff is not okay. And, you know, I had somebody call me a couple of days ago when I was on Fox Sports Radio and say, well, you know, Kraft, Kraft I feel sorry for Kraft because nobody else, all these other guys that were there, we don't know who they are, but we know who Robert Kraft is. Yeah, with great power comes great responsibility. If you don't want to be page one material for doing things untoward, 
then don't be famous. Because once you're in the public, you are going to be the face of an investigation. When the police came out and said, there is a newsmaker, and then Robert Kraft's name was released, I don't feel sympathy for her, for Robert Kraft because his name was released. His name was released because his name matters, and it means something. If you want to be a scumbag and not have that revealed, then don't be rich, and don't be famous, and don't be newsworthy or noteworthy in any respect. With anonymity... Well, you can stay anonymous. A dude making sixty grand a year that goes in there and pays $79 to have the same kind of thing done, his name's not going to reach. But Elliot Spitzer's is. Robert Kraft's is. You don't feel sympathy for him because it was splayed apart and now everyone knows his business. He was in private and now it's public. It's public because he's a public figure. But the reason I wanted to talk about this was to tell you the story about human trafficking. Because that story, ladies and gentlemen, would not have reached even the bottom of the hour on CNN, on Headline News, on Fox News, on NPR, here on our station, anywhere else. We wouldn't have known about that. It would have been a footnote that there were 20 different day spas and massage parlors in the state of Florida that were engaged in a giant human trafficking ring where women were basically kept as sex slaves and forced to live in conditions that simply are ridiculous. And these women came here to be free, came here thinking that they were going to have legitimate jobs, and then were basically chained up to do this, this work. That story never would have seen the light of day had it not been for Robert Kraft's name being tied to it. And rather than sit here and have sympathy for Robert Kraft or talk about what should or shouldn't happen to Robert Kraft, I just want you to know that what those women were going through is heinous. And unfortunately, it's probably going on elsewhere. And we need to pay attention to the secondary parts of stories that should be the first part. There's a glitzy part that, that gets it out there. But I'm thankful because this story existed that a name like Robert Kraft was attached to it because it actually illuminated something that does matter, which is human trafficking. Don't just read the headlines. Read the whole darn articles and find out what's actually happening. So many of us live in a bubble where we're not paying attention, and there is real evil in this world, and this is an example of it. We'll be right back. This is a Big Six on 104.5 The Zone. Four five, the zone. Nashville's home for balls basketball. Wednesday, Tennessee hits the road to take on Old Miss. Coverage begins Wednesday night at five thirty on one zero four five, the zone. Final segment tonight here on the Big Six. A little Wilco for you. Born alone. I'm Jason Martin. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. You can reach us at 615-737-1045. Jimmy Harper, my fine producer behind the glass, spinning the Dials radio style for me this evening. We are brought to you by Renters Warehouse, dedicated to putting homeowners on the path to financial freedom through rent estate. Renting your home without having to do the hard stuff. Renters Warehouse, the rent estate company. All right, so a new segment we're going to start doing every single night on this show, and I think we're going to have a lot of fun with this. It's going to be called Pro and Con. Pro is just something I find interesting, something positive that's out there, something I think is worth your time, something I like. 
con? Well, I think you probably get the idea here. Something negative, something I'm going to explain to you, why it's negative, why I dislike it. So let's get to the first one. It's an article actually from Wired.com called, I Stopped Using Exclamation Points and Lost All My Friends. Now, this is fascinating because of what it reveals about the lack of context in print as opposed to other forms of communication. So the author discusses how she used to write with exclamation points in text message conversations and how and in articles and how they've fallen out of favor in journalism and writing. And if you think about it, it you rarely see just one exclamation point anymore, especially in an article. If you're trying to find something to get emphasis out of, you're going to see people text you and they're going to throw six or seven exclamation points at the end to get the same desired effect. There was an article in The Atlantic about a year ago about how exclamation points are now, it's almost like inflation. It's like quantitative easing. You need more to get the same effect that you had before. And here's another example I thought of. Have you ever used eBay? You're going to understand this. Have you ever sold something or bought something on eBay? The feedback, the feedback that you get, you'll get a bunch of really nice stuff, and then it'll have an A-plus next to it. But somehow you wonder if you did something wrong. What is, what is better than an A-plus? Not really anything, but you've seen so many over-the-top eBay feedback posts with A-plus, plus, 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 plus. Yours then feels underwhelming. So this author named Lydia Horn discusses in this article how she stopped using exclamation points in text messages. And then she puts in screenshots some of the replies from people in her life that immediately started to feel like she wasn't as interested or enthusiastic as she used to be. Because the sheer fact of the matter is, folks, we can infer so many different things from text messages. We can project what we're thinking or what we fear the other person is saying from words that, and I've talked about this before, like many statistics, we can, we can make them mean what we want them to mean. And that includes our security or our insecurity. So she talks about how she starts using more emojis to try and compensate for the exclamation points, but they come with their own problems as well. And the reason that this interested me so much is that it's happened to me. A basic text response just kind of feels like nothing. And without question, sometimes I have made the wrong inference based on what pops up on my phone screen. I've had to think through it over the past few years, and now I've had to just kind of just stop overthinking text messages and trying to figure out what the tonality is on the other side. My girlfriend, she uses exclamation points a lot, and I used to joke about it with her, and she was self-conscious about it. But the thing about it was, it's not that I didn't like it. Quite the contrary, I loved it. It was a little foreign to me because so many people don't use punctuation at all in their text messages. And, you know, she would throw them and I would be like, oh, wow, she's excited about this. That's great. And I love it when I see them from her, even though then sometimes I won't get one. And then that'll leave you wondering, or that's sort of what the article is suggesting. At least this is sort of the problem with text messaging as useful as it can be. We are human beings and we sometimes go worst case scenario or our own mood can affect how we read something. You know what's better than text messages? Talking to somebody on the phone where you can actually hear the tone. You can hear the rate of speech. You can actually get a sense for the other person's humanity and emotion. And you're not just clouded by your own biases of what's happening or your own mood. 
there's nothing that you have to worry about there. And even better than that is actually looking somebody in the eye and having a conversation with them. Technology can be wonderful, but I guarantee if you text a lot, you're listening to me right now and saying, man, there are a few times where I wondered what was happening on the other end of that phone. What did that message mean? The lack of context in just flat words on a screen in front of you. It can wreck your day. It can make your day. It can make you things that think things that are not true. But when she stopped using exclamation points in this article, this Wired.com article, and I'll tweet it out, some of her friends stopped being her friends because they didn't understand anymore, and they thought that she was slighting them because she decided to try and clean up her text messaging. It's fascinating. It really is. So that's something that I'm interested in. That's a pro. Now for a con. I had people asking me for my Oscar opinions last night and asking for them all weekend long. And, you know, I was even thinking last night, maybe I should write about the Academy Awards. I usually did a prediction piece or something. I mean, I am a film critic. But here's the deal. I just didn't care, like, at all. I wrote on True Detectives Finale. You can read that at 1045thezone.com slash big6blog. And that finale was underwhelming in its own right. But I knew I could just go see who won. I could avoid all of the pretentious speeches and the politics that I was disinterested in and just skip it. But rather than sit here and explain my perspective on it, I'm going to tell you why you probably didn't watch it. Because you haven't seen more than a couple of the nominated films. I've mentioned this before, but there was a shift in what won Best Picture and largely what was even nominated for the honor sometime around 2010. Here's a list of your best picture winners since 1990. Dances with Wolves, The Silence of the Lambs, Unforgiven, Schindler's List, Forrest Gump, Braveheart, The English Patient, a little bit of an aberration. Other nominees that year were Jerry Maguire and Fargo. Then Titanic, Shakespeare in Love, American Beauty, and now we get to 2000. Gladiator, A Beautiful Mind, Chicago, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, with both other Tolkien films nominees in the years prior, Million Dollar Baby, Crash, which was garbage, The Departed, No Country for Old Men, Slumdog Millionaire, The Hurt Locker, also nominated that year, Avatar and Up, as well as Up in the Air, and then The King's Speech beat out The Social Network, Inception, and The Fighter in 2010. Those are A lot of the movies I just mentioned, you've seen and made a lot of money. And then comes 2011. Now see if you notice a difference in the winners. 2011's winner was The Artist. Argo, 12 Years a Slave, Birdman, Spotlight, Moonlight, The Shape of Water, and Last Night, Green Book. What do six, maybe even seven of those eight movies have in common? Virtually nobody saw them. If you further look at many of the nominees alongside them, no one saw them either. Here is why you didn't care last night on our way out. And Vol Calls is coming up next. Hollywood is rewarding what it likes. Usually it has to have some kind of a social or political statement. And that's probably why you didn't want to see it in the first place. And instead of major box office attractions being nominated or winning like they used to, you're getting stuff that 25 people saw. So it's only those 25 people that have any investment in what won Best Picture or have any investment in watching the Academy Awards at all. That, folks, is why the ratings are flat as a pancake. It's why there's no real reason to watch the show unless you're somebody like me who writes and talks about this stuff for a living. And guess what? What did I tell you off the top? I didn't watch it either. And I probably should have. 
Ball calls coming up next. That ought to be a fiery hour. Clear eyes, full hearts. Can't lose. God bless. And good night.